What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. I know we talked about this uh, somewhat yesterday, but uh, there's new news coming to the fore uh, that's pretty shocking with regard to the level of graft and corruption that exists within the Trump White House and, frankly, within within the Trump crime family. Uh, this is this is a really big deal. Spanky owns, excuse me, President Spanky owns a, uh, or is half owner, I guess, of uh, or half participant in a development deal in Indonesia. And in fact, actually, Ron Wyden, this this is fascinating. This was uh, yesterday. Ron Wyden tweeted, "Why is Donald Trump personally protecting a Chinese tech company guilty of evading U.S. sanctions on Iran? Why would that be?" And, uh, well, it looks like we're finding the answer, and people are starting to figure this out. You will recall two days ago, Donald Trump, or maybe, was it yesterday? Maybe it was yesterday. Donald Trump tweeted out that, you know, this ZTE, this, this big Chinese telephone manufacturer that sells the, the cheap phones that, you know, off-brand phones that you find in the United States, flip phones and, and the really primitive uh, you know, kinds of smartphones and things. Uh, This company, ZTE, manufactures these phones in China. They use some parts from the United States, uh, but they sell them in the United States. They also sell them in North Korea and Iran in violation of U.S. sanctions. And so while Donald Trump is telling our European allies, the the countries that we fought World War II against the Nazis with, and of course Germany, while he's telling our European allies, and in, in fact, you saw this on, you know, over the weekend, you know, uh, I believe it was Pompeo on the, on the Sunday shows going, yeah, we, we may slap sanctions on the European allies if their companies sell anything to Iran. Okay, ZTE is selling their phones to Iran and North Korea. And there's concern that the phones that they're manufacturing in the United States are being used to spy on Americans. Now, I'm not sure that that's been proven, but, you know, it's people are getting a little skitzy about it. And so Wilbur Ross, you know, the billionaire who uh, was, what, half owner of a, a bank in Cyprus, along with a Russian oligarch where money was laundered and all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, Wilbur Ross, our billionaire commerce secretary, said, OK, that's it. You know, we're going to pull the plug. You can't do business with America. American chip manufacturers cannot sell you the pieces that you need to make your phones. And ZTE said, OK, that's cool. We'll lay off 70,000 people and shut down. Donald Trump tweets, hey, we're going to save those 70,000 Chinese jobs, not to worry. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, if ZTE shut down because they can't get parts from America, that means that an, uh, an American company or an American entrepreneur who wants to start a company or an American entrepreneur who's already running companies, whether it's Tim Cook at Apple or Elon Musk at, at Tesla, could say, hey, I, you know, I'm going to get into the low-end cell phone business. I mean, ZTE had 70,000 employees in China. We could hire 70,000 people in the United States and make these phones. That's the outcome that you want. That's the whole point of bringing our jobs back from China. But then Donald Trump 
directs his Commerce Department. He doesn't, he does, you know, typically when a president does something like this, he will say to the Commerce Department, would you please examine what the consequences of this action would be? And, you know, a bunch of, you know, good little pencil pushers put together all the numbers and they figure out what's, you know, what are the consequences? How is it going to work? What's it going to, what will be the impact on national security? Bring in the NSA and the Pentagon. What will be the uh, impact on our economy? Bring in the Commerce Department, bring in the Labor Department. How's it going to affect our employment? All that kind of stuff. And then you get the information and you make a rational decision. Donald Trump did none of that. He didn't even consult with anybody in our government. He simply said, we're going to protect those 70,000 Chinese jobs. We're going to give this company an exemption, an exemption that we're not, we're, we're threatening not to give to China, to Spain, to Germany, excuse me, to, to, to France, Spain, Germany, the United Kingdom, Norway, you know, Denmark, fill in the blank, companies in Europe that are doing business with Iran also. We're going to nail them, but this Chinese phone company manufacturer or phone manufacturing company, nah. Turns out one day later, which would be either late yesterday or early this morning. I'm not, you know, part of this has to do with what time is it in China. But, the, you know, within 24 hours, China announced that they've got a half a billion dollars, $500 million that they are going to hand over to a project to help the Trump organization. The, the wholly owned private little company, that is owned by the Trump crime family. Donald and Ivanka and Jared and Don Jr. and, and uh, Eric, you know, Uday and Kuse. So President Spanky makes a deal, apparently, with the Chinese. I will save your 70,000 jobs in China and screw American workers if you will put $500 million into this project in Indonesia. Now, what is the project in Indonesia? Well, let's go to the Jakarta Post. Jakarta is the capital of Indonesia. And this is the main newspaper in that capital. And a fascinating little story that ran in the Jakarta Post yesterday. The park, this is a, the, a subsidiary Chinese state-owned construction firm, Metallurgical Corporation of China, MCC, signed a deal with Indonesia's NC Land to develop a theme park. This is like a Disney World that they're building. A theme park outside Jakarta is part of the ambitious project. The company said in a statement, this was last Thursday. The park expected to be backed. Now, at that point, they didn't know, right? This was last week. They didn't know if China was actually going to put the money in. China announced that they're putting the money in within 24 hours of Trump saying he's going to save 70,000 jobs in China. The park expected to be backed with up to $500 million in Chinese government loans as part of an integrated lifestyle resort known as MNC Lido City. The project includes Trump-branded hotels, Trump-branded residences, a Trump golf course, as well as other hotel shopping and residential developments. They called this, quote, the first cultural and tourism industry project by the Central Research Institute of Building and Construction in response to China's One Belt, One Road initiative. In other words, China's sprinkling money all over the world to turn themselves basically into the next empire, the next worldwide empire. And the Trump organization is now part of that. It was also, again, back to the Jakarta Post, it was also the first project to link the U.S. president's business interest to China's signature infrastructure initiative, which aims to connect the world's second largest economy, that would be China, with Africa, Asia, and Europe through a vast network of ports, railroads, roads, and industrial parks. The day after, Trump says, we'll save your 70,000 jobs. Mark Sumner writing over at Daily Kos. The Chinese government, this is yesterday, the Chinese government, you know, after the announcement, the Chinese government is directing $500 million to the Trump organization. And even the White House press office has been unable to say why this massive payoff is simply, is not simply an enormous bribe. The project includes hotels, a theme park, apartments, and, of course, a golf course. This company, by the way, not only makes cell phones, they also make uh, surveillance gear. And they have repeatedly been lying to U.S. investors. So at the same time, I, you know, I said it was uh, Mike Pompeo over the, on the weekend shows. It was actually John Bolton. 
on the weekend shows who said that, you know, he was going to go after European companies who do this, eh, but not so much Chinese companies. Trump's actions, Mark Sumner writes, Trump's actions now appear to be the, simply the largest case of pay for play in history. One day, one day after Donald Trump announced he would act to interfere in, in the ruling against Chinese telecommunications giant firm ZTE, a firm owned by the Chinese government, inked a deal to invest in and build Donald Trump's ersatz Disneyland. He is ordering the Commerce Department to take this action. What we are looking at here is the normalization of graft, to quote Susan Grigsby over at Daily Kos. It's the normalization of corruption. This, you know, I used, to, I used to say that the Reagan administration was the most corrupt administration in the history of the United States. They had more people arrested and convicted of corruption than any other administration in history. And, I, you know, of course, this is, you know, at the core of what it means to be a Republican. I got some more stories to tell you after the break that are going to curl your hair. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Or uncurl it, as the case may be. Stick around. So I mentioned Susan Grigsby uh, in, the, in the last segment, uh, the title of her piece over at Daily Co is The Normalization of Graft, and she pulls together a pretty remarkable summary of a few of the ways that the Trump administration is actually the most corrupt in history. Now, Donald Trump has no core values other than white supremacy and hatred of people who are of a different religion or of a different skin color. Uh, or who happen to be female. And I'm not sure that he hates them. I think he just uh, doesn't recognize them as fully human. But, you know, I guess functionally, what's the difference? But Mick Mulvaney, for example, let's start with the Office of Management and Budget, Management and Budget, and the guy that Trump illegally, against the law, literally against the law, the law that was created, Dodd-Frank, that created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, said that the number two, if the number one guy, in this case it was Richard Cordray, went off to run for governor of Ohio, if, if Richard Cordray, uh, if the number one guy leaves, the number two person automatically becomes the director. That's what the law says. But Donald Trump said, <laughs> We're going we're gonna to take this right-wing crank, this right-wing sellout who has spent his life taking money from corporations and billionaires, Mick Mulvaney, this, this, this two-bit Republican hustler who has been in charge of the Office of Management and Budget to come up with budgets that basically, you know, give away billions and billions of dollars. You know, he helped write the tax bill. Give away billions and billions of dollars to the billionaires and corporations who have been feathering Mulvaney's nest all these years. We're going to put him in charge of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It was Mick Mulvaney, so let's start there. It was Mick Mulvaney who famously told the American Bankers Association in a closed-door speech that leaked, if you're a lobbyist who never gave us money, I didn't talk to you. If you're a lobbyist who gave us money, I might talk to you. In other words, bankers, if you want to talk to Republican members of Congress, donate money to them. There's no other way to take that message. How is that not corruption? And then, you know, he's the, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau maintains, it's sort of like the business, Better Business Bureau, right? I mean, the whole point of this, when this was started, Elizabeth Warren came to Congress and to President Obama and said, you have a Consumer Protection Bureau that makes sure that, it, that if your toaster blows up, the toaster company gets it right. And that if your toaster blows up, you are protected. You can be made whole, even if it burns down your house. You have an agency in the federal government that oversees consumer products, toasters, cars, toys, cribs, shelves, refrigerators. When any of them fail in a really spectacular way that's the result of a company just trying to hustle extra profits at the expense of consumers, we can nail them. But there's no parallel for that with regard to financial instruments, with regard to banking, with regard to investments, nothing like that. So let's create one. And they created, it's called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It has recovered on behalf of consumers and returned to those consumers so far in the, in the, what, two years since it was created, over $11 billion given back to you and me, consumers. So, of course, Mick Mulvaney wants to destroy it. And one of the things that the CFPB has is a database of all the people who have complained against financial service companies and exactly what their complaints are, just like the Better Business Bureau does. So what does Mulvaney say? 
I don't see anything in here that I have to run a Yelp for financial services sponsored by the federal government. I don't see anything in here that says I have to make all of these public. He wants to take, the, he wants to hide, he wants to take out of the public view what the CFPB has done, all the good things it's done for people, and the complaints against financial service companies. So you got him. Then you got Scott Pruitt, maybe the second most corrupt member of the Trump administration. Like Mulvaney, she writes, Pruitt is always ready to listen to anyone who can pay for his time by contributing to his well-being. He placed a polluted California area on his, national, on his personal priority list of Superfund sites targeted for immediate and intense action after conservative radio and television host Hugh Hewitt brokered a meeting between him and lawyers for the Water District that was seeking federal help to clean up a polluted Orange County site. Now, why does Hugh Hewitt care about pollution in Orange County when, generally speaking, right-wing radio hosts don't care about pollution anywhere? Well, he lives in Orange County. And his son works for the Orange County Water District. So he calls up Hugh Hewitt. Uh, so Hugh Hewitt calls up Scott Pruitt and says, hey, do something about this. And Pruitt does it. He takes another, uh, another water deal. He, he takes a meeting with an Israeli water purification company called WaterGen and gives them a huge research deal with the EPA. Why? Because Shelley Adelson asked him to. So that's, you know, that's Pruitt. And it goes on, you know, from there. And then you get Ryan Zinke, right? All kinds of scandals, giving away federal lands to donors. What a surprise. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And much of this corruption, because of right-wingers on the Supreme Court, 17 out of the, 13 out of the last 17 Supreme Court justices appointed by Republicans. So the corruption is not limited to the Trump administration, by the way. This is something, you know, the, the whole idea of being a Republican. If you're a Republican, you know, voter in Iowa, being a Republican means basically you don't want black people moving into your state, right? You don't want Hispanics coming, you know, sending their kids to your school. Uh, you, you're, you're uncomfortable with gay people, you know, sitting next to you in the theater. I mean, that's what it means to be a Republican in, in the quote, the heartland, which, by the way, is no less, no more or less the heart of America than, than any place else. We're all Americans in this country. This, this whole idea that there are real Americans in the middle of America is just, is, is uh, one of the most corrosive and corrupt of the Republican memes that has, you know, come in a long time. It's like Nixon's silent majority, which, by the way, the silent majority was like, you know, white people who were upset with the civil rights movement. That's what, you know, that's what it will always code for. So it's, it's not just the Trump administration that is corrupt. It is the whole Republican zeitgeist. It is the whole, you've got Republicans running individual states who are doing it in just as corrupt a fashion as Donald Trump is running the United States. Because the, the animating impulse of the Republican Party, aside from the, you know, the racism and phobias and fears, which is what the, the, from the top down, they drive down through Fox News and right-wing hate radio, you know, to cause... Republican voters to be frightened and hateful so that they will vote Republican. But the real principle of the Republican Party is help out rich people, right? Pure and simple. And so you don't need to look to Trump to find this. For example, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin Public Radio, Chuck Quirmbach reporting uh, along with the Associated Press. You'll recall that Scott Walker is spending some, you know, there's different numbers that are used. Uh, one of the numbers I've seen is $3 million per job. He's, he's, he's giving a, a Chinese company out of communist China, a Chinese company aligned with the Chinese military. He's giving them $3 billion worth of subsidies and gifts and tax abatements and things in order to open a factory in Wisconsin that will employ a couple thousand people and that will dump enormous amounts of pollution into Lake Michigan. And that company has to hire an American contractor to build their campus, right? So who do we hire? Well, hey, we've got Scott Walker. He's a Republican governor. Republicans only give money to their friends. Republicans only give money to rich friends, in fact. So it turns out there's this guy in Wisconsin who has been donating to Scott Walker's career ever since he was a Milwaukee County, essentially a county commissioner. They call it county executive in Wisconsin. 
This guy has been a donor to Scott Walker from the beginning of his political career. His name is Ham, Hams, excuse me, John, John Hams, J-O-N-H-A-M-M-E-S. And he was the uh, Walker, the campaign director, the finance chairman, excuse me, for Scott Walker's 2015 bid for president. And he is currently Scott Walker's campaign finance chairman for his, you know, he's running for re-election. This is John Hams. John Hams owns a company called the Hams Company. He's given hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republicans and to Scott Walker. He's been a donor to Walker since the beginning. And so guess what company Foxconn chose to build their campus? Ham's company. Right. Melanie Conklin of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin says, this is another sign of corruption in the Walker administration to be giving major contracts on something you did for your reelection to one of your largest donors and the person who chairs your campaign finance committee does not fit with Wisconsin values. Well, it certainly fits with Republican values. Corky in New York. Hey, uh, in Hilton, New York. Hey, Corky, what's on your mind? Oh, Tom, yeah. Oh, it's a lovely administration. Yeah. You, you know, if you like, if you like snakes you know? and rats, yeah. This guy told you he was a crook before he got in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've known now he was a crook Chinese since the 80s. But... Half a billion dollars into his project. Yeah. Are you still there? I am. I'm listening. Okay. Corky, thanks. Uh, good point. Lynn in Sykeston, Missouri. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind? Not much. How you doing? Good. Tom? What's up? Well, I just started calling you. Uh, my cell phone went belly up on me, so I went down to AT&T and bought me another one. And they sold me a ZTE phone. Oh, really? It's cheap, yeah. It's an Android phone. Uh-huh. So I've been li- I listened to the news and everything, watching everything. I said, Man, maybe I better take this thing back out there before, you know, something happens or whatever. So I took it back out there, and they told me, you can't believe anything you hear on TV. Oh, uh, so the phone's not actually spying on you and sending the information back to China. It's just, well, a, they, it's they, just a good they phone. They can't guarantee that. They can't guarantee uh, that. <laughs> but they, they said they banned it on all the Army bases, so that don't sound good. Yep. yep. Not just all sure. the Army bases. It's also been banned in government offices. I mean, this... You know, it's it's like, you know, these operators, it's like I've I've got a, you know, I went to to Best Buy's to buy a TV and I wanted to get a TV that was not a smart TV because I wanted to hook it up to a Roku box or an Apple box and have some control over it. And but I wanted to, you know, hook some Bluetooth speakers up to it. And the guy said, well, the only one that's got Bluetooth is a smart TV. And he sold me this LG TV, uh, which is a Chinese company. And now, because I've got this damn smart TV, uh, you know, I can't, I can't add apps without opening an account with LT or LG or whatever it is, you know, which I, I'm assuming my information ends up in China. And it's like, you know, so some Chinese company knows everything I'm doing on TV. And, you know, your Chinese phone is going to tell China everything. You know, it's just, it is bizarre, Lynn. It is absolutely well, bizarre. Well, i tell you what, if they're, if, they're, if they're monitoring me, they're going to be awful bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yes and no. I mean, you know, they may be monitoring you to figure out what to sell to you, and they might be making your life kind of confusing or difficult as a consequence yeah. of that. Lynn, thanks for the call. It's, that's a fascinating story. Tony in uh, Bradenton, Florida. Hey, Tony, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just want to say, uh, Trump said that he uh, he's going to find his liquors. He's going to, I'm back, sorry, say it again? Uh, he's, he's, he was going to find the liquors. Oh, uh, find the liquors, yes. yes. Yeah, and his administration. Yeah. If we look back at history, Hitler had his own liquors. Many liquors, they tried to get rid of him, unsuccessful. Well, Many Hitler times. had liquors probably up until 1935 when he, t- he started putting them to death. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like, and, and if Trump wants to stop the leaks out of the White House, he's going to have to do what Hitler did, you know, bring them in and, and uh, garret them or torture them, you know, in front of yourself and your, and your senior command staff and laugh at it as they die. That's what Hitler did. And, uh, you know, but, but the fact that there are all these leakers, there were not leakers like this coming out of the Obama administration because people who worked for President Obama knew that he was a man of integrity. They respected him. There was an opus, open and honest process in the White House. The people who work in the Trump White House get it. They are working in a graft machine, in a corrupt administration. This guy 
you know, President Spanky is is a he's a modern day mob boss. He's he's the mafia without the Italian ancestry. He's he's the you know, this this is who he is. And this is the business that he's been in his whole life. The guy is a grifter. And so, you know, and he surrounded himself with grifters like Mulvaney and Zinke and, and Pruitt. I mean, these guys are just hustlers. That's all they are. And people inside the White House are figuring that out. And that's why they're going to the press, because they don't trust this White House either. Tony, thanks for the call. Charlie in Logan, New Mexico. Hey, Charlie, what's on your mind? Uh, I was just thinking in terms of the 70,000 jobs to China, uh, it's, is it just coincidence that it comes right on the tail end of the hostage release? Uh, from North because Korea? I doubt it has anything to do with that. I, th I think that that was uh, Kim Jong-un's way of playing Trump. He, he learned from the Saudis who figured out that if you suck up to Trump, he will do whatever you want and give you whatever you want as long as you suck up to him and make him look good. That's all Trump cares about. He doesn't care about what's best for the United States. He doesn't even care about what's best for the world. And frankly, I'm not sure he even cares about what's best for his family. He just cares about what's best for himself. I, I agree with all of that, but I just wondered, I've always felt that the um, release had more to do with uh, Kim's trip to Beijing a few few weeks ago than well, anything else. Yeah, it, uh, may, it may be that when Kim went to Beijing, uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, excuse me, President Xi yeah. said, uh, yeah. I got my wrong, uh, wrong order of presidents here. <laughs> wrong generation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, President Xi may have said to him, hey, you know, here's what I figured out when I went and visited Trump at Mar-a-Lago is, uh, you know, you suck up to this guy, give him, give him publicity wins, and he doesn't care what happens out of the view of the public. He just cares about what happens right. in front of the public. So if you can right. give him a publicity win, it won't cost you a penny to get rid of those three hostages. In fact, it'll save you money because you won't have to feed them. Uh, it, you know, it won't, it won't hurt you to get rid of them, and it'll put Trump in your debt and it'll make Trump more inclined to go along with the deal. So, Charlie, you may well be right that it was President Xi who was behind you know, this, or at least encouraged this, but I doubt it has anything to do with the uh, ZTE. I think that is entirely, entirely about Trump getting $500 million in the Chinese government for his Indonesia You're hotel. listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And his Indonesia condos and his Indonesia golf course, all part of this little Disneyland that's being developed in Indonesia where Trump is the 50% partner, and now it's being funded by the Chinese. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year round. Feel and see the X chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, Dot com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, refer, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. There's a, a fascinating phenomena going on in the United States right now. You know, at the, at the extreme end of despair, you see, for example, the Palestinians in Gaza who are, you know, hey, we've been living in, an, in a prison camp for years and years. We have no jobs. Uh, the, the septic systems don't work. The water systems don't work. The hospitals are understaffed. The stores are half empty. There's, there's uh, you know, massive unemployment. And if we, if we go up near the wall to, or near the, the, the fence to protest, they shoot at us. By the way, I, I heard somebody this morning on uh, one of the television networks saying, well, yeah, any country in the world, if you had people coming up to their fence like that, would shoot at them. I suspect that if Donald Trump had ordered the Border Patrol to shoot through the fence 
at that caravan from South Mexico, from Central America, to shoot at those people? There would be hell to play, pay in the United States. But anyhow, I, I, you know, I heard that, that argument being made, but I, you know, I don't buy it. But in any case, that's one extreme end of, of you know, hey, uh, you know, the, to paraphrase Bob Dylan, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. The other extreme end is, you know, the United States in the 1950s. And things were going well. There was not much protest. In fact, I don't, to the best of my knowledge, there wasn't any protest. Uh, you know, people had jobs. The economy was growing. Unionization was hitting 30%. You could go to college for free on the GI Bill. You could get federal subsidies for your house. Doctors made house calls. It cost 300 bucks to go to the hospital and have a baby. I mean, there, there was a time in the United States when life was good, at least for white people. When light, and, and, you know, for some people of color as well. But mostly, I mean, we were still an apartheid country. But, but still, there was a time in this country when, broadly speaking, things were not insanely terrible. So you've got that, that spectrum, or, or let's say that the, the, the other end of the spectrum would be Denmark or Norway or Sweden or France, where, where, you know, basically people are not protesting, people are not upset. And in between, in between, let's say Denmark, you know, the happiest country in the world, and Gaza, probably the most miserable place in the world, in between those two is us. And this, this uh, study uh, just came out from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. They insure 106 million people, which should give you pause. <laughs> but, you know, shouldn't the government be doing that? But anyhow, between 2013 and 2016, in a three-year period, major depression cases skyrocketed. S the, the jump is reportedly even more serious among children and young adults with depression diagnoses rising 47% in millennials, 63% in adolescents. This is a, somewhere between a 47 and a 63% increase in major depression among our young people. Now, no doubt some small part of that is attributable to discussion of depression, online discussions of depression, education about depression, people seeking medication, uh, pharmaceutical companies advertising on television and saying, hey, are you depressed? We can make you happy. You know, stuff like that. You know, some of those things are driving it, but I suspect that there's much more to it than just that. And I'm curious your thoughts on what you think would be contributing to this too. This study by, uh, by uh, the CBS station in Chicago suggests, and they're, they're, they're quoting Dr. Karen Haywood, who says increased use of electronics, video games more commonly in boys and social media and texting more commonly in girls can lead to increased conflict both within the home and among peers. High users of social media have been linked to higher rates of social isolation than low users. So she's suggesting that it's basically our phones and our computers. But I think it's a lot more than that. And I'm, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. And I'm not looking for stories of depression. What I'm, what I'm looking for are your, is your opinion on why are people depressed? And let me give you some possible answers, you know, some, some, some brainstorming that I did on, you know, what could be behind this. Among this generation, we have massive student debt and among the, the younger people, the prospect of massive, massive student debt. If you go to college, which everybody wants to do, or not everybody, but many people want to do, you go to college, by the time you graduate, you're going to have to spend the first 30, 40 years of your life just paying off your student debt because the for-profit college industry and the for-profit banking industry and the politicians they own who, who changed the bankruptcy bill in 2005, they all got together and said, let's screw young people and make the banksters rich and make the, the, the billionaires, the, 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 the DeVosses of the world, you know, who support or own for-profit uh, charter schools and private schools, let's make them rich. So is it student debt? Is it global warming? I talked to some young people a couple of weeks ago. I was down in Los Angeles and, and uh, you know, we hanging out with some friends of mine and they had some kids. And one of their kids was saying to me uh, words to the effect of, we all know that by the time we're your age, this world is going to be in a whole world of hurt. There's going to be millions of refugees. There's probably going to be worldwide war. And large parts of the United States may not even be habitable. We all know this. So is it climate change that's causing depression? 
Is it the corruption of politics? What I was talking about in the last hour, the fact that, that, you know, the Donald Trump administration and the Republican party in general are so corrupt. And there's parts of the democratic party that are corrupt as well. You've got Democrats who are absolutely just as much as Republicans in the, in the pockets of big insurance companies, big bank companies, big oil companies, big gun manufacturers, you name it. Now, it's a small percentage of Democrats, and it's 100% of the Republicans, but it's there. And it's all brought to you, by the way, courtesy of a group of Republicans, or Republican appointees, 100% of them Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court, as I mentioned in the last hour. 13 out of the last 17 Supreme Court appointees were appointed by Republicans. And if they can't do it honestly, they do it dishonestly, the way Mitch McConnell prevented President Barack Obama from having his appointee, Merrick Garland, on the Supreme Court for almost a full year. So is it the corruption of government, the feeling, you know, as Gillens and Page pointed out in this uh, Northwestern University study back from about three years ago, we had them on this program talking about it, that if you're in the top 1%, your political priorities actually get enacted into legislation. If you're in the top 10%, your political priorities, you got about a 60% chance of them getting enacted into legislation. If you're in the bottom 90%, your political priorities are completely irrelevant. The probability of them being enacted into legislation are statistically identical to random noise. There is no measurable relationship between what the bottom 90% of Americans want and what Congress actually does. So is that what's causing depression? Is it that our society has become and has been becoming since the, since the 70s and 80s, really, with the rise of Ayn Rand, libertarianism, objectivism, the, the whole libertarian party, the Ron Paul, Rand Paul phenomena, all this stuff, has become basically more vicious, more cutthroat, less compassionate, more concerned for, less concerned for people, more concerned for billionaires. That our political discourse and our ongoing discussion is becoming more libertarian. Is that causing children to be just depressed and young people and adults for that matter? Is it the school shootings? The fact that they know that every day that they go to school could be the last day on earth. I mean, you know, I grew up in a world where that didn't, that never even occurred to me. I mean, we were worried about the Soviet Union launching missiles, but we didn't even take all that all that seriously. Is it the, so is it the, the, all the, the guns? Is it the rise of right wing hate? Is it that white people are beginning to learn what, what people of color have known forever in this country, which is you can't even walk down the damn street without having your life at risk. You can't go buy a bag of Skittles and a can of, of iced tea like Trayvon Martin did without ending up dead before you get home. You can't have a taillight out like Sandra Bland did. You can't sell loose cigarettes on the street I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. We've got, like Eric Garner, we've, we've got this long list. I mean, you can't barbecue at a, you know, like the, the family did in Oakland. And of course, for, for centuries, people of color have had good and solid and legitimate reasons to, to experience depression or rage or PTSD and the whole spectrum of stuff. But is it possible that as young people, as white young people are becoming friends with people of color, that they're beginning to empathize with them and that that is now smearing across our, our, our political dialogue. Is it the right-wing hate? Is it the fact that right-wingers now are responsible for more deaths in the United States, more murders, more political terrorist murders in the United States than, than even so-called Muslim terrorists? Is it that? Is it that the right-wingers, you know, that if you're gay or if you have friends who are gay, now we're in a world, you know, I mean, you know, look at how fast gay marriage was ratified. We're in a world now where young gay people and young trans people are not afraid to come out. And so, you know, is it that they're identifying with their friends? Is that's why they're depressed? You know, what's going on here? Is it the rise of right-wing hate that's causing this depression? And by the way, all of these things that I just shared with you, from the student debt to the global warming to the corruption of politics to the you know, more libertarian, less compassion to school shootings to the rise of guns, the rise of right-wing hate, all of these things brought to you courtesy of the Republican Party. So is it the Republican Party and cons so-called conservative right-wing hate politics that is causing this explosion of depression? Or is it something completely different from that? Something I'm completely missing because I'm so blinded by being a lefty. What do you think? Why are we seeing this explosion of depression and anxiety? 
is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the third hour of our program. On the line with us is Professor David Graber. Uh, Dr. Graber is a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. His last book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. My recollection is we had him on the program about that. And his latest is uh, a word you can't say on the air, uh, but we typically abbreviate that word with BS. So we'll say BS Jobs is the title of the book. He has His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, The Guardian, The Baffler. Uh, you can tweet him at David Graber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. And uh, his uh, website. No, I don't have a website for him. So, David, welcome, wel- welcome back to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you with us. So, uh, tell us what is you know BS jobs. What are you talking about here? Well, it's kind of been discovered in. Uh, I'm kind of a stranger to academic professional managerial life. I come from that sort of background, and one thing I kept noticing was. I keep running into people who, when you ask them what they do for a living, they're kind of apologetic or evasive, and they, well, they say nothing really. And, you know, if you ask them, if you follow up, maybe get them a little drunk at a party, you know, they'll admit that they actually mean literally nothing. They don't do anything. They they maybe work two, two hours a week, or they have a job which they think is just completely pointless or meaningless. And, and I wonder, you know, how common is that really? I wrote a little article about it, which is almost a bit of a joke. This is back in 2013. Um, maybe this is the reason we're not all working 20-hour weeks, you know? Maybe, maybe they just kind of made up jobs to keep us busy. And I was just shocked by the response. Um, I, I wrote it in a rather obscure publication, Strike Magazine, a new magazine had just started. And, and it just went crazy. Like within weeks, it had been translated into 12, 13 different languages, uh, millions and millions of hits. The server kept crashing. I realized that this is a lot more common than I thought. And ultimately, people made a, did a survey. Um, YouGov did one at first, and they did another one in Holland. They discovered that somewhere between 37 to 40% of all people in jobs say that you know, were their job to disappear, it would really make no difference, that so they make no meaningful contribution to the world at all. Now, let me, let me give you a counterpoint to that, David, because and, and, I, I suspect that there's more to this than just the job itself. My dad worked in a tool and die shop for 40 years. I used to go down there after school every day when I was in elementary school and hang out with him and the guys. And um, these, this was a unionized shop. So every single one of the, and it was like a 14-man, you know, it was a small, small tool and die shop. And then there was one guy who did nothing, but he was the janitor. He swept the floors and things. But they were all in the union. They were all making what in today's dollars would probably be sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year, and mm. they all had good incomes. They all could take vacations. They all bought a new car every other year. They all had full health care and retirement, and they loved their work, even though all they were doing was running lathes and blanchards and things, you know, grinding metal all day long, um, in ways that would seem meaningless. But well, they not only found meaning out of this, but but when my dad retired. He kept going back there, and and that was not uncommon. A lot of these guys, after they retired, they would still show up and have lunch with the guys. Well, sure. I mean, but that's not a meaningless job. That's the very definition of the opposite. I mean, you're making stuff that people obviously want and need. And when I'm talking about meaningless, I'm saying, like, if this job didn't exist, nobody would care. Um, If there were machines, we'd be in trouble. Everybody knew that. For example, do you mean like, what kind of job are you talking about? You mean like being a Walmart greeter? Well, I mean, I'm talking about, okay, I actually um, did a survey. I, I, I asked people to s- create an email account, and I said, just send me your most pointless and, and idiotic jobs. Um, and I got about well, a few hundred um, responses, which I then categorized. And, and basically what we're talking about is clerical, administrative, managerial jobs, uh, supervisory jobs. So like a lot of people said, well, I'm, I'm middle management. My job is to supervise people who have no need for supervision. Um, a lot of people are kind of flunky jobs or, they, or receptionists for places that don't actually need receptionists. Some places do need receptionists. But other places, you know, they just sit there all day. Maybe they get one phone call. Um, they're there as an ornament because if you don't have a receptionist, you're not taken seriously. Uh, but, but the thing that really – struck me was just how many of them there were. You know, everybody knows there are a few jobs like that, but this was just crazy. There there, seemed, there are thousands and thousands and thousands, actually millions of people uh, who, you know, labor in the secret knowledge that, that their jobs are just completely pointless and unnecessary. Do you, and, and you don't see a connection between, between the job and, or between the, the feeling of pointlessness and the level of pay by and benefits? Um, there's a negative relation. Um, the, the more 
useful your work is nowadays is definitely true because those like you know well-paid union jobs are less and less of course nowadays the more useful your job the more your job helps other people in some way whether that's you know by providing care if you're a nurse or, or making products that people actually do want to buy um the less they'll pay you this is this is very clear um the most useless jobs are almost invariably the ones that are the best paid and there are a few examples of doctors. Um, you know, if you're a union plumber, you still make good money. Of useful jobs that are well paid, but it's really the exception nowadays. Interesting. It, how, how is this different from 50 or 100 years ago? Well, um, I think we have a false narrative of what happened. You know, the way people talk about it is, well, there's been a rise of a, of a service economy. You know, farming collapsed and then industry collapsed, and now we're all just selling services to each other. The way they make it sound, you know, basically everybody's employed feeding each other sushi or uh, repairing one another's iPhones, giving each other haircuts. But this isn't actually true. Actually, if you look at the the real numbers, about 20% of the population is now, or the workforce, is now doing actual service work, and always has been. I mean, it's been about the same. It fluctuates a little bit over time, but basically it's been about 20% for the last 100 years. So that's not what changed. What makes it look like services are going up is actually clerical, administrative, and supervisory sort of jobs, management. There's this, an enormous efflorescent of these sort of pointless office jobs. Hmm. And these are not considered service jobs. Well, I mean, they're categorized as such. You know, if you're an IT service or you're like running the database or writing articles for an in-house magazine in a corporation or you know, all these kind of things, which HR, you know, I guess that's categorized as service uh, in most of the uh, when people talk about the rise of the service economy. But it's not really service. It's, it's a different thing. Yeah. You you uh, you talk about and this is from the dust jacket of your book, nurses, bus drivers, musicians and landscape gardeners provide true value. And what it says about us as a society when we look down upon them. How is that part of the dynamic? Well, that's the interesting thing. It, it is, it's not just that the more useful your work, the less you get paid for it. It's that a lot of people seem to feel that's right. That's the, I mean, nobody feels it's right when it happens to them, right? Um, so if I'm working in social services and I'm, I'm in so much debt and paid so little that I can't feed my family, I think that's wrong and unfair. And of course, I'm right. Uh, but when you talk about society as a whole, people will say these crazy things. They'll say, well, you know, we wouldn't want teachers to be paid too much, but we don't want people who are mainly interested in money to be teaching our kids. Or, or people will say things like, well, you know, if people have to make sacrifices, it, you know, it might as well be the people who are already involved in, in, in these well, they, they don't quite say it, but, but for example, here in the UK, um, they seem to think that. After the banking crisis, who had to take pay cuts? Not the bankers, right? They're the ones who caused the problem. But the government didn't seem to find any problem leaving them all their money. But on the other hand, suddenly ambulance uh, workers or, or you know, the guy in the train station who gives you information, all these people were actually providing helpful uh, services. Those are the guys who have to get pay cuts. It's gone to the point here in the UK where there are full-time nurses uh, who are actually dependent on food banks who are, you know, have to have to go to charity to eat because right. they're not paying them enough. And and the government, you know, cheers when they like, cut, the, um, cut the salaries for these guys who are actually useful and no one would deny it, um, has no problem with, with, with hedge fund managers like still making off like bandits. And somehow they, you know, they remain in power. It's right. not considered an outrage. So there seems to be this idea that people who are public-spirited should be the ones who are making the sacrifices and shouldn't be paid as much. Right, and that's an argument that's used against public employee unions as well. So, uh, yeah. David, we have, just, we have just a minute here until we're going to hit a break. What is the solution to this? Ah, well, I mean, there's various ones. We could, massive reduction of working hours would be one solution, but my preferred one at the moment, I actually, um, I'm going to make a case for universal basic income. Okay, go for it. Mm -hmm. All right, you want me to do that now? Yeah. Please, if you okay. can do it in 60 seconds. Um, well, uh, I, I'd say it like this. Um, nobody does these kind of jobs for any reason other than the money. So if they already had the money, they wouldn't do them. Um, I mean, we have this idea that people want something for nothing. And one of the things that, that you know, the very misery of these people in, in these kind of BS jobs shows is that this is not the case. I mean, these are guys who are given money for nothing, and they're very unhappy. The, the amazing thing is just how disturbed, and, and they're they're even more unhappy because they can't fig, don't feel they have a right to be unhappy. So you don't you don't think that uh, you know if a BS job causes unhappiness and then there's pay associated with it that if you give people the same pay with no job, no BS job, that they won't be equally unhappy? 
well, if they don't do anything with their life. But the thing about a BS job is that you have to go there and pretend to work. Right. If you just if they just gave you the same money and said do something useful or interesting to you, or that well, you care about. Would, do something useful. I mean, you know, I mean, a few people would slack off, but you know, most people actually want to be doing something with themselves. That's why they're so miserable when they're not allowed to. Yeah. Um, and and you know, maybe some of them would do stupid things. And this is the usual criticism, right? Well, okay, maybe um, they would do something they think is useful, but what? Maybe society wouldn't. Maybe they'll all go off and you know, right. try to like. No, I get it, but but, but odds are they won't. David, or... David, we're hitting the break here. We're out of time. David Graber, the book is BS Jobs, only BS is spelled out. A Theory is the subtitle. David, thanks so much for being with us. It's the Tom Harbin Program, your media for the sane among us, Chris in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Chris, thanks for listening to the stream on X-Ray FM. What's up? <laughs> Tom, I am a 28-year-old millennial, and I would characterize myself as a recovering Alex Jones listener. And the one thing that you outlined with not only just the Ron Paul, the kind of libertarian economics, there is definitely a strain of that. That's the Alex Jones, the libertarian fear theology that, you know, I when I got out of high school, I didn't immediately go into college. And I had a lot of personal failures in life. I was still living at home. And here you had Alex that was just telling me, it's the Illuminati, it's the New World Order, it's the Teachers Union, it's Democrats and Obama. And, and for a lonely young man who doesn't have a lot going for him, that's the ultimate scapegoat. And then you kind of come together with other people that feel that way, and you just get sucked right in to the rabbit hole where it's just constantly, Alex would just tell you some new piece of information that you didn't know that you need to be upset about. Like they're putting chemicals in, and I know, and I, I know that you speak to eating well and stuff, but I do think that a lot of young people, you did have people like John Burt society back when you were a kid, but not like this. I, yeah. There's a lot of young people that are just get sucked right into this. You, so, know, you had Jerome Corsi on last week, and young people believe this crap. Yeah. So Chris, if I can, if I can uh, feed back to you what I think I just heard from you, you're suggesting that the antidote to depression is a sense of self-control, or at least an understanding of one's situation. And the demagogues on the right are basically saying the reason that you're suffering is because of those Jewish people over there, or those black people over there, or whatever. And having a scapegoat makes, and particularly a scapegoat that you can identify as inferior to yourself, gives you a sense of meaning, of belonging, and, and, and of understanding that helps resolve the anxiety and the depression. Is that, what you, is that the essence of what you're saying? I kind of think that could be what it is. And, of course, like all the student debt and whatnot, I recently just started up a small business, which uh, I identify with your son, Justin, a lot. You've written about him in a lot of your books, and mm -hmm. um, I'm just a little younger than him. But, I mean, and so there are a lot of people that kind of come from millennials that just feel kind of lost and we're self-discovering. But I think more time than any, I think we are being, uh, you know, recognized for certain strengths because I suffer from ADD and that you were kind of a failure before and you had to get on medication and stuff. And, right. and I do think also that's becoming more diagnosed anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and, just, just, and not just ADHD, you know, dyslexia and everything. All these, oh, you don't fit in kind of stuff, you know, it's, it, and that's got to be uh, crushing to a young person. I mean, that's why I wrote those books on ADD, <laughs> on ADHD. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris. Great to hear from you, and I, I appreciate the feedback. It's, it's, it's really interesting to, to consider you know, is it, I don't think that we're seeing an increase in the diagnosis of depression. Although I do think that we're seeing an increase in the use of pharmaceuticals to deal with depression because it's quick, it's easy, and it's inexpensive. It's a heck of a lot cheaper to prescribe a drug to somebody than to do two hours of therapy with them every week, number one. Number two, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to do either one of those two things than to help them substantially change their lives or to make sure that they've got a meaningful job, to go back to David Graeber, that actually pays well and has good benefit. And welcome back, Brenda in Copperas Cove, Texas. Am I saying it right, Brenda? Yes, Professor Tom. Thanks hey. for taking my call. You're welcome. You're, What's up? You are one of my cures for depression. Okay, good. Thank you. What's uh, on your mind? What do you think of my thought? Depression is um, one pathology of mental health, and I think that the main cause of the growing depression is the inequality in all um, aspects of our lives. 
You know, I didn't even mention that, and I'm a big champion of Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett's books, The Spirit Level and Why Inequality Matters, and their websites associated with the same. They're both British academics, and what they have found unambiguously, indisputably, is that as inequality goes up in society, depression goes up in society, suicide goes up in society, homicide goes up in society, drug addiction goes up in society. So bingo, Brenda, I think you win the prize. I think that's a big one, and I, I didn't even have it on my list. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I think that the thing that we're suffering under most is the, uh, kind of like a patriotic mentality mm-hmm. versus a matriarchal consciousness. Yeah, or a, a me media and, and, and uh, uh, corporate and, and political system, uh, but we're wired for we social, as we social animals. Me, me versus the all. Yeah. I don't want to do good for the all. I just want to make sure that I am taken care of. Yeah, very, very well said, Brenda. I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. Thank you. Lori in Ch- Club, Missouri. Hey, Lori, what's up? Hey, I just wanted to say you are a voice in the wilderness out here in southern Missouri. Thank you. Um, abuse uh, has run in my family, and every time I am exposed to the political system in this country, it triggers so much um, pain mm. from memories, and it's it's kind of like it's a it's a a textbook case of abusive behavior by our government as a father or a mother figure to the children, mm. and it for those of us that have suffered from physical and mental abuse, this is a terrible time for us because, because is this... we're being bombarded with it every minute of every day. Are you talking specifically about the Trump administration and the Republican Party, or is this more broad? Well, no, actually, it's specifically this particular political climate is nothing I've ever experienced. I'm 66, and it's triggering. Depression is repressed rage. So it's, it's triggering my impotence to, in the face of a parental figure. To yeah. say no, to stop it. To, yeah. You know, I, so, so it's it's deeply psychological to those of us that have experienced this. Yeah, I would say it goes a step beyond repressed rage because repressed rage is still rage. It's when rage ceases to be rage and begins to be um, helplessness, and then you get into the work that Marty Seligman did on learned helplessness. You know, his studies with dogs back in the seventies. And, and how helplessness then leads to depression. Um, that's, that's some amazing, amazing work. But, you know, spot on, and, and, and I'm just, you know, rhetorically splitting hairs with you, Laurie. I think that you're, you're absolutely right, and what you said is 100% true. Laurie, thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking about why this explosion of depression. I mean, we're seeing like a 60% increase just in a four-year period. What's go- among young people, among people under 25, what is going on? Dina in uh, LaConnor, Washington State. Hey, Dina, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hi, Tom. I read an article a couple of months ago in Rolling Stone. That, uh, was, it was an interview with Bono, and he summarized it in a, in a way that I thought was pretty applicable for me um, specifically and probably a lot of other people. And it's a couple of quick paragraphs. May I read them? Uh, if it's a sentence or two, yeah. If, if it's more than that, no. Uh, can you okay. just paraphrase it, Dina? You, you yes, tell us in your I own will. words. Yes. Um, I have to get to that part because I was going to read a little more. Um, um, it says, um, I thought he, his response to, you know, everyone being upset about Trump being elected was um, his thought. This is melodrama. Why are people, rational people I know, feeling out there grieving like someone just died? It will correct itself, whatever. But then I realized something had died, people's innocence had died, and a generation that had grown up thinking that the human spirit had a natural evolution toward fairness and justice was learning this might not be the case. Right, right. Well, you know, and I get that. I mean, there's, there's this sense that we were on this wonderful trajectory with Obama's presidency, you know, we're going to become a post-racial society, and we're going, we're going to be a more egalitarian society, and hope and change are going to happen, and then we got Donald Trump. 
and and it's like boom we're right back to the john birch society in 1956 and yeah. and uh but you know that's the bad news the good news is that uh, you know as as dr martin luther king said you know the the, the moral arc of the universe albeit long you know tends toward justice yep. the the arc of political change although long i mean you, you go through sometimes insanely violent hiccups. Look at Europe in the 1950s, or 1940s, rather, excuse me. Um, you go through these terrible hit-bottom times, but Europe now is so much better than Europe was in the 1920s. And so, uh, you know, I think that, that perhaps we're, you know, I believe that we're going to come through this and that we just well, need to hold to that. Bono did mention uh, that quote, actually. It's kind of where he started. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, my, my fear is that they are moving more quickly than we can catch up with. Yeah, unfortunately. Dina, thank you for, for calling and sharing. That's fascinating. Ken, in New Oxford, Pennsylvania. Ken, uh, we've got 40 seconds. It's yours. Oh, boy, this is about Gaza and mental health, okay? Okay, sure. I'll leave you with three thoughts. Three thoughts. The first thought, one who fights dragons all his life becomes a dragon. The second thought, recall Jews uprising in Warsaw, Poland. My third and last thought is, recall Pope Benedict resigned. Now, I'm a Friday caller, and I'll call again on Friday, but I get depressed because I'm not being heard. So I'm not going to argue your point because I know you don't have time. But I will always, always speak out where I feel is the truth. Well, speaking out is the cure. I mean, this, this is, you know, becoming part, become part of the solution rather than part of the problem, to, to uh, paraphrase the old cliche that, that uh, Jared Kushner used yesterday. I couldn't believe that he just pulled that, you know, this trite, terrible cliche. Uh, out, but in any case, you know, you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Yeah, right. I was, I was alive in the 60s. Apparently, he wasn't. But anyhow, so much to talk about, so much going on. Keep yourself awake, right? Stay woke, stay present, and do something. It is the cure for depression. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it, because democracy is not a spectator sport, it requires all of us. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon, and uh, we'll be back. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.